entitled Come to Him, and our scripture reading is Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As long as I remember, remember to turn that on, I'm good. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to be with you. Uh, excited. Nate did say that, you know, the Super Bowl doesn't start till mid-afternoon. So we've got lots of time. <laughs> Buckle up. Uh, no, promise we won't go super long. You know, check your watches. Don't set a timer. Please don't set a timer. Um, it is Super Bowl Sunday. It's also the first Sunday before Lent. And so this Sunday, as we enter into a new series and into Psalm 1, we're really going to be looking at renewal of our relationships between us and the Lord, individually and corporately. And, you know, relationships take time, and at times, all relationships need renewal. If you have relationships, as I'm sure all of you do, you know this. Husbands and wives, friends, siblings, parents and children, those relationships take time and focus to be fresh and deep. And so that's the goal for us over the course of Lent, is the renewal and deepening of our relationship to God. This is something that the church has done historically and something we enter into along with the historic church. And that will lead us up to Passion Week, which ends with the good news of the death and resurrection of our Savior. So to cultivate this focus, we're going to be focusing on the Psalms and prayer. How we pray our despair, fears, envy, anger, shame, anxiety. And before we get there, we start today with Psalm 1, which stands in contrast to the others calling us to listen and to meditate. So let me pray for us, and then we can get started. Father, uh, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the entry point on the path to prayer. And it does stand in contrast to the rest of the Psalms. I mean, in Psalms, you find that this is the book that the church has gone to throughout its history for direction on how to pray and how to seek the Lord. So with Psalm 1, we have this arched gateway over this path to prayer that answers the question, how do I grow in my prayer life? Like, I think if we were to at, send a survey out to like everybody sitting here, and if question number one was, how's your prayer life? And it's a scale of one to 10, nobody's going to go a 10, right? Like no one ever answers that like, 
I'm the best prayer there is. And it's as deep as I want it to be. And so that question of how do you deepen your prayer life, it's one that we all, I think, resonate with. And Psalm 1 answers, and it answers in somewhat of a surprising way. The answer that Psalm 1 gives us is that before you speak, you need to listen. Before you go to God and come to him with requests, you need to hear his voice. Do you find that power lacks from your prayer life? Psalm 1 says, listen. Do you find the motivation is low? Psalm 1 says, you need to listen. Do you find yourself overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, uncertain what to ask for, not sure where you could look for direction? Psalm 1 says, come to the Lord and listen, and it will answer all of those questions on how you enter further into prayer. So why? Why begin here? Why is it that you have 149 other psalms that really focus on leading you deeper into prayer. Yes, 149. I know like some of you are doing math out there. You're like, hey, but wait, there's, a, there's 151. It's because the first two go together. So just take my word on that. So you have these two psalms that start at the beginning until you listen. And why do they do that? Before you speak, why listen? The answer is that who you believe shapes who you become. And that's what the psalmist invites us into. All evidence to the contrary. Freshman year of high school, I was a two-sport athlete. Football and basketball, which maybe that tells you something about the, the size of people in my high school. But nonetheless, I was a two-sport athlete. And I can still remember coming off of football, going into basketball, and uh, going through tryouts. Two nights consecutively, back-to-back, more sprinting than I'd ever done in my life. And we get to the end, and, you know, it's like it's that moment of truth. They have the divider down in the field house. You got the wall behind you. Coach is standing here. Assistant coach is posting up the roster. Who made cuts? And coach calls me and Kevin, who I remember his last name, but I'll, you know, to protect the innocent, I won't share. He calls me and Kevin over, and he says, hey, can I talk to you guys? I'm like, yeah. And, you know, like in your head as a high schooler, you're like, coach wants to talk to me this must be important. And he looks us both in the eyes and says, you know, I played college ball. Right, coach? And I see in you something that I had when I played college ball. Like, preach on, brother. What do you have? It's like, I wasn't the biggest guy. I wasn't the fastest guy. I wasn't the most talented guy on the team. But I had heart. And what I see in you is heart. And that's why we're going to cut the team at 32 positions this year rather than 30. Which you kind of go, oh, thanks. <laughs> I get, I think. And so, like, obviously, I wasn't the most talented guy. I wasn't the fastest. I didn't play all through high school. But I will say this. When you hear something like that, what you believe will shape who you become. Uh, The way that I engaged in practice, in games, I knew I might not have everything else, but I can bring it. Like, I will 
hustle more than anybody out there. And who you believe shapes that. The messages we take and internalize and delight over will, in time, mold our character. And whatever molds your character will shape your destiny. That's what Psalm 1 tells us. And so it's asking us that before we go into the heat of our anger and wrestle with the longing of our envy, before we bandage the scars of our shame, it tells us to stop, to listen, and to ask, who are you believing? Who are you hearing? What are you listening to? The answer to those things will get at what shapes our beliefs. So the psalmist, in order to do this, has us look at three things. He asks us to look at where we meditate, to look at what lasts, and to look at where it leads. Where we meditate, what lasts, where it leads. So, Psalm 1, where we meditate. The first picture he gives us is that of a tree. So in the first verses, he opens up with this sort of wide cast of characters. You have in the first two verses, the scoffer, the sinner, the wicked, which are all there to contrast the fourth person in verse 3, which is the blessed man. And in verse 3, he says that that blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. And just like a tree, the seed of our faith, of belief, it starts off small, delicate, in a world that is easily overwhelmed by circumstances. And because it finds deep roots in something that gives life, it grows into something that's vibrant, living, unshakable, immovable. Not so with the first three people, the scoffer, the sinner, the wicked, who all take their own counsel. And this is the contrast. They take their own counsel, but the blessed man finds his direction and his joy in life from the word of the Lord. That's the secret that creates flourishing. It's the source of our belief. And so amid a flurry of different voices, you have these first two verses picturing. Amid that flurry comes out meditating on the law of the Lord and delighting in that. And when you put your trust there, when you believe this word, life transforms. As one commentator puts it and points out, the law of the Lord, it doesn't this is not a set of rules, right? That's not what it's referring to. The other Ten Commandments are contained within it. But this idea of the law of the Lord really points us toward the first five books of Scripture, the Torah. And so think about it. Think about what you have in those first five books. If you're familiar, probably can recall. If not, I'll help you out here. There's lots of story. There's lots of narrative. There's the garden. There's the exodus. There are songs tucked in there. Just a few of them, but there's songs, there's poetry. There are the Ten Commandments. There's a whole bunch of legal code that happens in there. Uh, There's stuff about what to do if you have mildew in your house, which is a whole other sermon. Don't worry about that. But like, there's a lot in there. And so you can't, it's not law as in, well, these are just some rules that I read and then I follow. It's not as basic as that. There's depth to it. 
to, to really hear the word of the Lord within that kind of context, you're going to have to chew on it. You're going to have to consider it. You read a narrative, the moral doesn't always just jump out at you, right? The direction doesn't always just present itself. You need to think it through. And that's what the idea of meditating on the word of the Lord includes. It's inspiring, it's intricate, and it's that meditation that starts to unlock vibrancy in your prayer life. So how do you do that? The psalmist tells us it's made up of two things, delight and dependence. He doesn't say in this verse that the blessed man's awareness is in the law of the Lord or that his study is in the law of the Lord, as good as those both are, but that it's his delight. So the secret here is that among all the other things that pull for your focus, for your attention, that want your trust, that want to define you, amid all of that, you find pleasure in God's word. And you're able to meet him there. Not only that, but there's also a dependence on it. And you see this dependence in the place that the tree is located, right? Tree is located by streams of living water. And it's that meditation on God's word and taking it into the day-to-day of life. That's where your prayer life is going to spark up. One commentator puts it this way, that through this instruction, through the Torah, through the law of the Lord, we learn the will and way of the Lord, which we store up in such a way that it shapes the structure of our consciousness. And as you do that, what you believe and who you believe will shape who you become. If you want the stability of a great tree, it's about putting God's word into you and taking it into the difficulties of life. It's about taking the difficulties of life that you experience to the word of God. The word is the match. Things in life are the flame. And they go together. And that's where prayer ignites. While I was in the process of studying this text, uh, I had one of those weeks at work. And you know the kind that I'm talking about. Uh, The kind that give you this new sense of having failed on a daily basis. Um, It starts out on Monday. Everything's going good. Like You have your coffee. You have that start to the week. And then you get that text from your boss. comes over teams. And it's the kind that makes your heart drop into your stomach. You know that feeling. I'm at the top of the roller coaster. I'm looking down. And that's not what I expected for the week. And so you fix one crisis, and then you move on, and you think it's good, and then you find yourself in another. And then you find yourself in another, and you kind of go down that path most of the week until... You have a chance to meet up with your boss later. And they say a lot of encouraging things, a lot of helpful insight. And then there's that question that kind of comes at the end of, you know, what might you need to change in order to move things forward in a different way? And when you get that question, moments like that can reveal your, where your identity is. Not only that, but who you're believing, what you're believing can even shape how you hear that question in that moment. If you believe that your value depends on your performance, 
moments of challenge like that will devastate you. And you may not realize until you get to that moment that the bottom drops out on you and that your trust isn't where you thought it was. Do moments like that happen to you? And when they do, do they stir up in you not only a sense of nervousness, but maybe a sense of hopelessness? It might be that you built your life around the hope that you could perform so well that everything in your sphere of responsibility would be perfect. It could also be the fear that someone will finally figure it out and figure out you don't know what you're doing. And then maybe that fear settles in further and you go, man, I'll be out of a job. In moments like that, who you believe and what you believe will shape who you become. Will you go down this path of self-dependence and anxiety or will you find another way? Now, what's the antidote to something like that? Psalm 1 tells us, Meditate on the word of the Lord. Listen first. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. If you go here first... How does it change what you will ask next? If you go here first, it will shape who you become and your very prayer life will transform. What about you, mom, dad, in those nights of anxiousness when the babies won't sleep? Where do you find your mind and your heart going? Or in the seasons of uncertainty as they get older, which I'm not there yet, but uh, people tell me, uh, they get older and there's less that you can do to keep them safe. Where's your trust? Do you have a word in you that you can look to at the bottom to catch you when you feel like you're free falling? How about you, successful professional Do you know that your worth is not based on what you do? It's a gift that Christ has given to you already. Or to any of us, when we walk into the doctor's office and we have the uncertain diagnosis, do you know that he's with you there and then and that there are promises for you in the midst of that challenge? It's not a surprise that this is the source of true prayer that the psalmist points us toward. And it's not only about looking at where we meditate, at listening, at spending that time in Scripture. It's also about looking at what lasts. So 
The psalmist leads us on, and he gives us a second picture in verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. He underscores the contrast between the great tree that thrives near a stream and chaff that's thrown into the air and blown away, never to be seen again. And the, the picture here isn't one that, it's one that the psalmist would have been very familiar with, us less so. When you have wheat and you've gathered it in for the harvest, you, and people still do this today in agriculture, you have to find a way to separate the husk of the wheat from the thing that is the nutrition and the substance. So what they would do is take it, throw it into the air, and as it goes up into the air, the wind comes by, and the chaff, which is that husk, is so light that the wind just takes it away, and the substance, the grain, the thing you want to keep falls to the ground. And then you can just gather it up and take it off and make bread. Do whatever it is people do with wheat. That picture is the one that the psalmist uses for the wicked. They're like chaff. What he's saying is that there's a kind of voice that you can listen to. There's a kind of person that you could become that becomes as fleeting as chaff, lighter and more airy until finally the temporary is blown away. You can go through some of life's greatest challenges and you can look for temporary voices that will give you relief in the short run, but they won't transform your soul. The messages that we believe that lead to that short-term alleviation, I mean, Even as I said earlier on, your value is not based on how well you perform. And like some of us are going through performance review season at work and you're like, yeah, I don't know about that. Like your value kind of is though. Like that's how you get more money, right? Is like you perform really well. Well, there's a kind of short-term fix that, that goes down that kind of a path, right? And what's more tempting to any of our challenges than immediate relief? But what if that advice only does give you temporary gain? What if it's only short run? In a 2015 column, David Brooks reflects on this very contrast, and he highlights it as the difference between building eulogy virtues and building resume virtues. And here's what he says. It occurred to me that there were two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, or faithful, were you capable of deep love? We all know the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching skills and strategies that you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light Many of us are clearer on how to build external careers than on how to build internal character. And he goes on from there to say a great many things um, to describe the ways in which we can become kind of complacent, kind of sleepy about the most important things that really happen at the soul level as the years tick by. And he caps it off saying that gradually a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you 
and those incandescent souls you sometimes meet. Who you believe will shape who you become. And in this case, putting your trust in the kind of temporary fix only can short-circuit the deeper soul work that involves spiritual foundations and cultivating a depth and trust with the Lord. And here's the irony. If you take the short-term fix, you become less and less the kind of person who is like a tree. You become less and less the person who can weather any storm. And more and more, the person who's lighter and more like chaff, more apt to blow away. The psalmist leads us in the end, not only having us look at where we meditate, looking at what lasts, but also inviting us to look at where it leads. And he shows us here two paths. This is kind of like the big denouement. It all comes together here. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These two paths in life, these two sources of belief, shape a person and shape their destiny in very different ways. And that's the kind of thing you might expect to hear in Scripture, right? The righteous survive, the wicked will perish. But did you catch why? Like, there's a surprise tucked in here. Did you see it? You might expect to hear, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but he doesn't know the way of the wicked. Or you might expect to hear, the way of the righteous will flourish, but the way of the wicked will perish. But That's not what it says. It says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The contrast here, the, the core of it, is between knowing and perishing. And that contrast is one that goes all through Scripture. The psalmist is picking up on a vein that runs from Genesis to Revelation. If you go all the way back, you remember, in the opening pages of Scripture, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. And there they are, known by God and knowing God perfectly, better than almost, well, certainly anybody in history up to that point. And what was God's word to them? What did he reveal to them? He said, you can eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. In essence, obey me and live. Know me, know me, and don't perish. And they all lived happily ever after. Until one day, they listened to a different voice that had direction that would not last. And they ate, and they perished. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus comes back to the garden, knowing God, being fully known by the Father. In fact, he said, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. And there he is, sweating great drops of blood, pleading with God, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And what was God's word to him? Obey me and die. 
know me and perish. And he did. And he did it for you. He did it for all of us who failed to seek and listen to the Lord. He did it on our behalf. You might wonder, how do I become a person of substance? What is it? How do you get those eulogy virtues? What's the way? Tell me how to do it. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing better. It's by knowing that you have a father who loves you, who clothes the grass and the lilies of the field, and who will take care of you and who you can count on because he gave his own son for you. And it's that, it's that belief, it's that trust at the bottom of all of the hardships of life that will transform you and shape you into a different person. If you really believe that, how could it not change who you become? Don't you see? The word of God is the way into prayer. It's the way into joy. It's the way into truly satisfying the deepest longings of your heart in a way that won't crumble, in a way that in the end will last into eternity. Some of you may not have that much experience in taking in God's word. This might be, might be a new path for you to walk. Let me ask, what would it look like to find some time in the busyness of your schedule to engage in exploring God's word, to find who he is? Others of us might have a great deal of experience. You're like, yeah, I do like mornings, coffee, me and Jesus, we are together in this. Like, I do this every day. I'm on top of it. And some of it, which is good, that's good. And you might have scripture memorized, like great long passages, which is awesome. Let me ask this, how is it going meditating? How is it going bringing the match of scripture to the flame of the troubles of your life and meeting it there? Some of us may have been away from God's word for a while. And the reasons for that could be many. Uh, the busyness of life, going into a different season. If you've got babies, it becomes increasingly challenging to find that morning coffee time with Jesus. One morning could start at 2 a.m., could start at 4, could also start at 6, could also start at 5.30, and it might not ever end <laughs> throughout the day. That you, There could be seasons, too, where maybe you've experienced Scripture being used in a way that the Lord wouldn't have used, but it pulls out voices from the past that are troubling for you. Let me ask this. If you've been away for a while, what would the path back to meditating on God's word look like for you? And how might you meet him in the midst of his word to hear not the voices of the scoffer, the wicked, the sinner, but the voice of Christ who died for you? And for any of us, imagine the person that you might become. The confidence, the gentleness, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control that could be yours as you meet the Lord in his word. That way 
has been made open to you. Knowing the Lord and being known by him is yours through Christ, and that will not perish, and it can never be taken away. He made it way open for you. Meet him there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've given us in your son. Thank you for giving us your word as the signpost, the marker that can direct us through life. And even more than that, giving us your word as the living embodiment of your voice, the place that we can meet the God of the universe who created us, who shaped us, who knows us. Thank you that you haven't left us alone and that we can come, we can listen, we can meditate and have not just a direction, but a person to meet in the challenges of life. Amen.